So here we are, we've come to lesson 22 in the study of Romans, we're in chapter 8. And Paul, through chapters 5 and 7, has been telling us that we're dead to sin, and the sin nature. And now in chapter 8, he's repeating himself in a slightly different and more direct way, but he's still speaking of not walking in the flesh, but instead giving yourself over to walking in the Spirit of God and Messiah. He spent a whole lot of time on this concept because it's so important to the purpose of the letter, which is going to become evident as we go through chapters 9 and 14. There's where we're going to find the true purpose of the letter. Why do you suppose he would spend so much time here? Well, who's the main audience again? The Gentile followers of Yeshua in Rome. And at the time that he's writing this is about 55 common era. That's just five years past Acts chapter 15 and the apostles' decision that the Gentiles not, need not be circumcised. It's also still before the major split between believers and non-believing Jewish people. The followers of Yeshua began by worshiping in established synagogues. And so if we look at the congregational makeup of the recipients of this letter, we would find that these folks are worshiping in the synagogue with non-believers as well. Now, if you've been through the people of God study, you remember there were three groups of people in a Jewish synagogue at this time. There were natural-born Jewish people. Then there were proselytes, or we could say circumcised full converts to Judaism. And then we had a class of non-Jewish people called God-fearers. And they were those who were studying and worshiping among the Jewish people, but were not yet circumcised. They had not fully converted. Well, in this congregation of Rome, we're actually going to have six groups. Because we're going to have those three groups, Jews, proselytes, and God-fearers, who have not come to faith in Messiah Yeshua. And then we're going to have that same three groups of people who have come to faith in Messiah Yeshua. And so we actually have six distinct groups of people in this synagogue in Rome. So the letter is, however, mainly written to, mainly addressed to the non-Jews who have come to faith in Messiah Yeshua. And there's a reason, and we're going to find that as we continue on through the book. Now, for the sake of continuity today, let's just begin with what we covered last week. Just read through it quickly. Chapter 8, verse 4 says, And so he condemns sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, or Messiah, he does not belong to Messiah. But if Messiah is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit alive because of righteousness. Let's look at this because it's kind of a hard statement and we need to know exactly what he's saying before we move on. 
He's spoken about how we are justified through faith in Messiah Yeshua. Then he goes into a lengthy discussion on walking, on not walking in the flesh, but walking in the Spirit of God. And now he's in the process of concluding this and moving on to the last half of chapter 8, covers the hope and the reward that awaits those who are in Messiah. Well, here he states plainly what we've been saying for weeks. In summary of what he has written of the first eight chapters, he says this, The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who control by the sinful nature cannot please God. Those who do not submit, or we could say obey, because the Greek word can mean either, those who do not obey God's law. Those who are controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Now that would be hard enough statement, and we covered it, I thought, pretty thoroughly last week. But Paul takes it a step further to ensure they understand. He says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Messiah, he does not belong to Messiah. His target audience is the followers of Yeshua. And we know that because he says, you are not controlled by the sinful nature. And he's referring to the regeneration that has taken place in them. Through accepting Yeshua and through the guidance of the Spirit of God. However, as we continue, we're going to see it. It may not be so complete. In fact, as Paul will later state in, 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 the, in the book, it's a daily struggle against your flesh. You struggle against it daily. But again, he says, if you have the Spirit of God, you will not sin. Oh, granted, you might make a mistake, but what he's saying is you'll repent, you'll get up, you'll repent, and you'll move on because the Spirit of God will not allow you to be a habitual sinner. If you have the Spirit of God, you will not habitually sin. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, if you don't have the Spirit of Messiah, then you don't belong to Messiah. You are not in Messiah. You see, there's a prerequisite there for verse 1. Remember what verse 1 said? Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Messiah. Now, for the last two weeks, we've looked at what the therefore is there for. It's a prerequisite for there being no con- condemnation in Messiah. The other is this. If you are in Messiah. Well, Paul just told us what being in Messiah is all about. He says that those who are in Messiah have the spirit of Messiah. And you can recognize that by the fact that they are obedient to God's law. And if someone continues to sin, continues being controlled by the sinful nature and not the spirit, then he does not belong to Messiah. That's a sobering thought. And one that makes, might make you want to stop the boat and check the rudder. What does the spirit of God do for you? Well, he gives you course corrections in your life. The spirit of God is the regenerative power of God in your life that strengthens you against the battles you wage against the sinful nature against your flesh. Now, if you thought that was sobering, listen to what he says in 11. 
And if the spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead is living in you, he who raised Messiah from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Paul tells us that we've been redeemed by Messiah, and because of that, we are obligated to live by the Spirit. And I'm going to read this in the NSAB, uh, NASB version of the Bible, because they nail this right on the head. It says this, So then, brethren, if we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, we have a debt to pay. And the payment can only be made by walking in the Spirit of God according to the law of God. Joseph Prince says there's no prerequisite. Well, I beg your pardon, Joseph. Dying is definitely condemnation. If you don't change your life from the control of the sinful nature and what it desires, you must die. And I want you to see something else. And that is the phrase, putting to death. We are dead to the sinful nature, but Paul says putting to death, telling us that this is an ongoing obligation, an ongoing battle. We have to continue to walk in the Spirit, pray at all times, put to death the misdeeds of the body, and if we do that, then we'll live. You may as well face facts. You don't ever get there in life. You battle the flesh every single day of your life. He tells us that we may still sin unintentionally, but we will not continue in habitual sin. The battle goes on all of our life. And if you don't live by the Spirit, you don't belong to Messiah. If you, don't deliver, if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But the good news is this. If you live by the Spirit, you are putting to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live. If you live, you are in Messiah. Because remember, death is separated from God and life is united with God. Well, my goodness, Paul, why did you just say that in the first place? Why did you have to drag us through chapters 5 through 7 and then just tell us plain here in chapter 8? How easy is that, right? Now listen, as we move into the rest of uh, chapter 8, life really gets good for those who are in Messiah, right? We just read over the parts of the chapter that you never hear in the church. And now we're going to go to the parts where the preacher, he skips from verse 1 to verse 14 usually. Forget those verses in between. <laughs> They're too hard. But listen to what verse 14 says. Because... Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For if you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And notice what he says. He's summarizing what he just said. If 
By the Spirit, you continue to put to death the misdeeds of the body through the leading of the Spirit. Then those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. If you're led by the Spirit, you have life. You're united with Messiah. He's in you and you are in Messiah. You are co-heirs and sons of God. Folks, it doesn't get any better than that. Put to death your old man. Obey the commandments by walking through life by the Spirit of God and you are a son of God. Well, guess what? That's the same thing Yeshua said in the Great Commission, the great thing we were supposed to go out and preach. Listen to what he says in Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Listen, folks. Teaching the nations to obey the commands of God was always part of the good news. Those in the church who teach the law of God has been nullified. Get around this by teaching that Yeshua, oh, Yeshua here, he's referring to his commands, not those of the Torah. As if Yeshua and the Father who gave the commands of the Torah differed in what they wanted from creation. As if they were on a different page. Let me say this. They are in perfect agreement. Listen to what the Torah prophesies of the Messiah. It says this in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Verse 17, the Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I commanded him. And if anyone doesn't listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. When the prophet comes, who is the Messiah, he will teach everything the father commands. And if anyone doesn't listen to the words that the Father speaks through the prophet, then the Father will call him to account. Well, let's look at what Yeshua said. Yeshua says this in John chapter 12, verse 49. For I do not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say, is just what the Father has told me to say. So I ask you, how does the commands of Torah differ from the commands of Messiah? They don't. And Yeshua also said this in John chapter 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. In Matthew, he speaks of those who call him Lord. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So if you think that Yeshua came to preach something different from what the Father had spoken, you fool yourself. And if you listen to a preacher tell you that Yeshua and the Father differed in what they expect from their creation, you're listening to one of those myths Paul spoke about last, we talked about last week. Because they both told us they do not differ and God told us he does not change. So Paul is concluding his statement on obeying the Torah through the leading of the Spirit with really good news 
for those who hear, understand, and obey. And in verse 16, he says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Messiah, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So we are heirs, co-heirs with Messiah. Co-heirs to what? You know, if you're an heir, it means you, you got something to be, you're going to get something. Well, it is the promise of the world to come. It's the same thing he spoke of in chapter 4 and verse 13. It says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through righteousness that comes by faith. We are co-heirs to the world to come. Abraham, through faith, is our father. And we are heirs to life. And that is life in and with Messiah. What does he mean by that if we share in his sufferings? What does it mean? Well, of course, what it cannot mean is his vicarious atonement that he suffered for us. The only way we can share in that is to accept what he did for us as a free gift. And then we share in the benefit of his suffering on the tree for us. So what's... Does suffering mean here? Well, quite simply, it's the suffering you're going to go through and the rejection that you're going to experience if you put to death the misdeeds of the body and live by the principles of the word of God through the spirit of God. It's the suffering that you're going to go through if you preach the good news as it was intended to be preached. If you obey the commands of God, you're going to suffer persecution and rejection. Yeshua did before he suffered on the stake. He was rejected by his brothers over and over through his ministry. Listen to the words of Yeshua. I'm going to read the prayer that's recorded in John. It's the only place it's recorded. And in his prayer, you're going to hear his will for us. You're going to hear his total agreement with the Father. You will hear him tell us that we will suffer as the same, in the same way that he suffered. Listen to what it says, verse 14 of chapter 17 of John. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. I do not ask you to take them out of this world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Notice what he says. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them for it. We spoke of this a few weeks ago. If you read the word of God to someone who's caught up in the world and in sin and that word speaks against the sin they're in, they will hate you for it. Why do they hate you? You weren't the one who wrote the book. You weren't the one who wrote down those words. Their creator inspired another to write those words, and you're just reading them. Why do they hate you? If you believe the Bible... We understand that God wrote them to convey to us his reasonable expectation of his, for his creation. And so 
Understand that if you do, they're going to make you suffer. They're going to make you hate. They're going to persecute you. They actually hate God, but because he's in you and you're in him, they'll hate you as well. And if you doubt that, you only need to begin to speak the truth and obey the word of God. Begin to keep the Sabbath and the festivals of the Lord and reject those that came into the faith through Romans and the pagans. Like Easter, named for the goddess Easter, and Christmas and Sunday worship, which came from the worship of Mithra and the sun. And then go tell that good news and the truth you found to those of your family and those you know in church and see what happens. Some of you already know what happens because you've already done this. You're ostracized. You're cast out because you just desire to obey God. You'll begin to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It was no different from with Yeshua. Yeshua came into this world. He was born into a nation that was to be Torah observant. But through the flesh, they had gone astray, misinterpreted the word of God for the benefit of their own flesh. Yeshua came and spoke the truth of the word, just as Deuteronomy 18 said he would. And the world hated him for it. The leaders of the nation that he came to save, hated him for it. They rejected him for it, and he suffered for it. And if you think it's going to be any different for you, when you speak those same truths, you're in for a big disappointment. Now, before we get to the words recorded for us in chapter 8, and the promise of living in victory, there's one more thing that we should say in summary to all of this, first seven and a half chapters there's one more thing we should do because by now everyone here should be asking themselves why all of this talk of sanctification why all this talk of sanctifying yourselves and walking out the commands of god through the leading of the spirit well obviously there must be a problem with some of the followers of messiah in this roman synagogue It seems to me that some of those non-Jewish followers are not walking in the Spirit since the letter's main recipient is the Gentile followers of Messiah Yeshua. There's no doubt about that. So we should probably begin by assuming that there are some of these who are not walking fully in the commands of God by the Spirit of God. Now, I know this is you're going to be blown away in the next few weeks when we start going through this because it's so different from what the church has taught. The church, by pulling verses out of context, has interpreted this book to the Romans as Paul telling the Gentile followers of Messiah not to walk by the Torah. Don't be influenced by those who do. But in fact, as we've seen, just the opposite is true. But that's how it's preached. And we had a perfect example of that last week. After the last week's service, Someone came to me. We had a large number of visitors last week. And one of them, one of the people who was sitting by, behind one of this large group of visitors heard them say this of, as I read this verse. First I'll read the verse and I'll t- then I'll tell you what they said. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. And this uh, person who was sitting behind these people heard them say, I didn't know that was there. 
I didn't know that was in there. Well, sadly, most of the church doesn't know that that's in the book of Romans because we don't really study our Bibles, and it's certainly not preached by those who want us to think that the law is no longer valid for we believers. Even when someone does read those words, they don't register because over the years we've been indoctrinated by this erroneous teaching that the law is no longer valid for we believers. They instead hear that the law is nullified by Messiah when in fact you can't even please God unless you obey the commands of, the, uh, commands of God. And if you listen to that all your life, when you finally read something like this, you tend to just write it off. Or make some kind of an excuse for it being there. Like, oh, he means the laws of Messiah. But we've been going through this verse by verse, checking words within the verses for a clear understanding. And it's, the understanding is that if we're going to live lives pleasing by, to God, we have to live lives by the commands through the leading of the Spirit. So again... In summary, we have to assume that the main recipients of this letter are having a problem in this area. And I want you to keep that out of the forefront of your minds as we go through chapters 9 through 14. As we enter chapter 9, because before we uh, move on, we're going to move on to chapter 9, but we have to cover this hope of the glory but I want you to keep this in your mind as we go through these next chapters. We're going to cover it in a few weeks, but let me give you a few major clues of what the problem is here. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul will discuss Israel and their election. And in chapter 11, he says this then, in verse 17 he says, If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be ignorant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God, the sternness to those who fell, but the kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not... If they do not persist in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Do you see what he concludes chapter 11? And then when he concludes chapter 11, he says, all Israel will be saved. So what does the problem seem to be here? That after speaking of the fact that we're saved by grace, and we need to walk out the Torah by the Spirit of God, putting to death the flesh, that he would speak of Israel's election, include that with, do not boast over the natural branches. Well, obviously, there are some Gentile believers that are thinking awful highly of themselves, and they are boasting over the non-believing Jewish people in the congregation. Imagine how that must have troubled Paul, who began this whole discourse 
with this. In Romans chapter 9, verse 2, he says, I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. For Paul, his hope was to preach to the Gentile to make his Jewish brothers jealous. How will that happen if those very Gentiles that he's preaching to are boasting over his Jewish people? Now, if we go to chapter 12, we're going to find something similar. Listen to what chapter 12, he's going to bring home his point again. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. There are some of those who he's writing to. And remember, his main audience is Gentile followers of Messiah who are thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. Listen to Romans 14. We get another clue why he's writing this. By, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand, in before, stand before the judgment seat of God. You see what I'm saying? There are those who are thinking a little bit too highly of themselves. They're judging their brothers and treating them with contempt. Now let's move to chapter 14 and we get another clue of who he's rebuking. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking in according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Messiah died. Now let me ask you this. Who would be offended by food? Well, we're in Rome. And food is really a problem for the Torah observant in Rome. And let me be clear. We're not speaking about pork here because Paul would have never called pork food. Why? Because the Torah declares pork not food, but unclean. And Paul is Torah observant. So when he says food, he's talking about, where's the beef? (laughs) So what is he speaking of? Well, the problem for food in Rome is meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Sacrifice was part of the worship in nearly, with nearly all of the gods in Rome. Sexual immorality as well. And the Roman gods in the temples, they were no different. This was their practice. So animals would be sacrificed to the gods, then the party would sit down and a big feast would begin. And they'd spend a little time with the temple prostitutes. Well, when the party was over, what happened to all the leftover meat from the sacrifice? Well, it ended up in the meat market, sold by the temple officials. Well, it's a sin. It's a Torah violation to eat meat offered to idols. So if you're going to the meat market in Rome, how would you know if that meat was offered to an idol or not? With that in mind, then who would be offended by this? Who would be offended? Well, for sure, it would be the Jewish people. And the proselytes who would be offended by this. Really, it should have been anyone who was Torah observant. The fact that the followers of Yeshua should be offended too because it's a direct violation of Acts chapter 15. Listen to what Acts chapter 15, the 
this binding decision on the, on the Gentiles. It says, abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood and from things strangled, from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. These are things that would be abhorrent to anyone who followed the God of Israel because they're abhorrent to the God of Israel. What is the one thing that all of these things have in common? They're all idolatrous practices forbidden in the Torah. We'll look more at that in the weeks to come. But it's pretty plain. Abstain from meat offered to idols and from fornication, both for sure practices of paganism. It would seem, and we're going to go and uh, show this in detail as we continue through the remaining chapters, that there are Gentiles in Rome who are acting totally offensive to those who follow Torah. They're thinking too highly of themselves. They're not being careful about what they eat. And because of that, they're causing Jewish people to stumble. They're not loving their neighbors. And the neighbor they're not loving are the very Jewish people Paul wishes he were cut off for the sake of. The very people that these Roman Gentile believers should be bringing to jealousy. Next week we're going to begin to look at the last part of chapter 8 and this amazing good news. But I'm going to prove all of this to you as we go through the rest of this book. I just want you to be ready for it. Because... It's so far from what you've heard in the past. 